Welcome to Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture, hosted by me, Alexandria Miller. Strictly Facts teaches the history, politics, and activism of the Caribbean and connects these themes to contemporary music and popular culture. Wagwan family, and welcome back to another episode of Strictly Facts, a guide to Caribbean history and culture. Today's episode is one that I know is long awaited and is a great episode as a follow-up discussion from our last one on the French Caribbean. Occupying the western half of Hispaniola, Haiti stands as the world's first Black Republic on January 1st, 1804, as well as the first independent nation in the region and the only state to be established by a successful revolution of the enslaved. Our conversation today will not only ground us in the history of this nation, but clarify such a success, especially when the reign of slavery and colonization continued to plague many other Caribbean islands for many, many decades. Haiti was seen, you know, even could potentially be made, continues to be seen as a threat, not only to colonization in the Caribbean, but Black liberation across the world. So joining our discussion today is Dr. Evelyn Alexi, Associate Professor of Africana Studies and Comparative American Studies at Oberlin College. Dr. Alexi, thank you so much for joining us today. Please tell us a bit about yourself, where in the Caribbean is near and dear to you, and what led you to ultimately becoming a scholar of Africana Studies. Oh, definitely. So honor, honor, respect, respect to you, Alexandria, and all that you're doing. It's such a wonderful moment to be in community with a Black sister nerding out, which I love about the Caribbean and just global Black studies. We're everywhere as we should be. So a little bit about me. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York in the part that's known as Little Haiti. So I spoke Creole, French, of course we heard Patois. Um, And so I only spoke English in schools and formal settings at the mayor's place. We were always protesting either Mayor Dins or Mayor Rudy Giuliani about immigration issues and just civil rights issues when we think about Amadou Diallo and Abner Louima, et cetera. And so I always knew I was a history buff because I was very fascinated by what was happening to Black South Africans. And so I ended up going to Cornell University, majoring under the tutelage of Dr. Margaret Washington and, you know, Dr. Robert Harris and Dr. James E. Turner as well as Associate Dean, if not Dean Janice Turner at Cornell University. And that felt wonderful being attached to the predominantly white history department, but also Africana studies, which was just a bubble of good nurturing love. Like they tell you get yourself together, but that they also would hug you when you needed it. And so that felt really wonderful. Then after I took two years off just to figure out what is it that I want to be? I think, you know, like being a child of Caribbean people, you're in school at the age of two and a half. So I needed a break at 22. (laughs) And then my people are like, you better go back to school. I'm like, I'm going. So then I ended up going to the University of Massachusetts Amherst where people like Mavis Campbell, Dr. Mavis Campbell taught, and also Dr. James Baldwin, et cetera. And it's been wonderful to meet scholars such as Francoise Hamlin, who you all have the pleasure to have, who is one of my mentors and continues to be Dr. John Higginson, Lowell Goodmanson, Jay Roush, and Drs. Joy Bowman, and, you know, Jamaican, Carlene Eady. Um, So I did history as a PhD with a Latin American Caribbean focus. And then Rutgers uh, gave me an opportunity to be their presidential postdoc. Uh, in 2011 to 2013, where I just met wonderful Caribbean is doing what you're doing, Alexandria, collapsing the borders to see 
how is Costa Rica and Puerto Rico related to Dominicana studies, related to Haitian studies, and what's happening everywhere in the Caribbean. So that felt wonderful. And then 2013, I came to Oberlin College where I've been. We are so thankful to have you joining us, and I appreciate the thanks. I just want to jump right into our discussion today. I think one thing in particular, you know, Haiti was preceded by centuries of colonial rule, like many of our islands, first the Mm -hmm. Spanish and then later the French when it was known as Saint-Domingue. When you think back on this history, I think, you know, 1791 marks a very important moment. You know, we all have, I think, if you're at least a bit familiar with Haiti, you're like, yes, 1804, 1804, right? Um, But 1791 marks a very important moment in Haiti's history um, in terms of rebellions for emancipation that broke out across the colony. So could you walk Mm -hmm. us through um, sort of what this moment was like and the subsequent 13 years that we now know as the Haitian Revolution? Definitely. Yeah. You know, I think I stand on the soldiers of so many scholars who root the beginning of the revolution to the shores of the African continent, whether it's coming from modern day Nigeria, Ghana, Togo, and different parts. And so the fact that we refused to be shackled or we jumped overboard or committed infanticide as acts of agency and resistance, it's interesting to see how we're moving the timeline, the timeline rather, of the Black freedom struggle back to the continent and saying, wait a minute, it happened before we arrived forcibly to the Americas. So oftentimes when I think about the Haitian Revolution, I go back to Francois Macandel who created lovingly and in a political manner, these uh, poison packets that protected and healed those who were enslaved, those indigenous people caught up in this system as well of dispossession, but also poisoned the owners, the colonizers, the racist, sexist individuals, and also people who were against queer folks. Let's keep it real when we learn about the amount of abuse that enslaved men, women, children across gender identities endured at the hands of white women and white men. It's just it's astounding. So for me, I root the beginning of that revolution to 1757 with Francois Macandel. And so that moment of 1791 with Wakaima ceremony, I mean, so many of us thankfully are challenging this idea that it was orchestrated by Bukmadati simply. And there's this whole idea that no, Sissi Fatima was by his side. And more importantly, so many unnamed women and men, um, Africans of different um, diversity, whether spirituality or royalty to kingdoms like the Zulu kingdom or the Asante kingdom or citizens of them participated in this revolution, whether they were speaking Congolese, whether they were speaking Twi, that in that moment, it unified us to act together for nation and what will become nation and for one another. So August 1791 kicks off what's known as the Black Haima ceremony. And throughout (laughs) Saint-Domingue into Haiti's revolution from 1791 to November of 1803, it involves a cast of, you know, telenovela characters. There are people engaged in slippery alliances and foes against one another that not only involves the Europeans, whether it's France and Spain, 
a little bit of Britain, of course, the domineering presence of the United States, but also the fact that there are Bosales, Africans who are fresh to Saint-Domingue or Africans who are born in Saint-Domingue, which is hard to even think of when we think about the Caribbean scholar C.L.R. James who talks about and reminds us that your shelf life, your life expectancy in Saint-Domingue was seven years because it was so brutal, right? So there's a lot of infighting between different groups about the strategies. Are we doing it the Malcolm X way? Are we doing it the Fannie Lou Hamer way? Are we doing it the Ella Baker way or Stokely Carmichael way happening in the 1700s and early 1800s period, which I think is so beautiful to not make it a simple, single narrative of victory. But I mean, many of the leaders, including Toussaint Louverti and Jacques de Saline, these men ordered the assassination of people who look like them, right, as they ascended for this nation to be free. And so oftentimes I think about so many of the unnamed women who don't get their shine, like Sanité Belair or um, Marie-Jeanne Lamartinière and so many others who participated, but somehow, some way, every August <laughs> of every year, it's like Jean-Jacques de Saline, Toussaint-Liberty, Henri-Christophe and Alexander Petion. And I'm like, hold up, right beside them, in front of them and behind them, we're women, we're queer folks, right? As, we, as the investigation is showing. And as you know, the last uh, battle, the Battle of Vecchia is fought November of 1803, and it takes some time for Jean-Jacques de Saline and his team of people to write the Constitution and the Act of Independence that comes out in January 1st of 1804. And one of the things that my students and I reflect on is the reality that one of the disastrous legacies of slavery is that it left so many people illiterate and without formal education. So the fact that um, Jean-Jacques de Saline has to get someone else to write his thoughts and convey his very raw, dramatic, and nationalist, nationalist feelings. You know, we have to sit and reflect on that. But then also the way that they're using call and response and saying, Alexandria, I'm telling you how we're free. Go tell it to Pierre. Go tell it. Pierre's going to tell it to Maria. Maria's going to tell it to Tomas. I find that that's fascinating and also allows us to look back at our own call and response griot culture that we didn't let go of in Motherland Afrique. And so, yeah, so that's what I'll say. I think that sort of aftermath moment, right, I think is very important that you just brought up, especially because, you know, we think 1804 and it's wonderful now, right? And that's very much so not how that took place. So could you walk us through a bit what the aftermath looked like, what structural issues Haiti was facing? We have to talk about this I don't even want to use the word reparations, but, but yes, I will. We, yes, we'll, <laughs> that is the big, the big point here that I, I definitely want us to discuss. Definitely. No, for sure. I think about just the works of Haitian historians, like, and you know, I'm going to just categorize everybody as a historian right now, like Dr. Kitley um, Mars, there's Kitley Millet as well, Susie Castor, and Roger Gaia, whose works are like on my shelves, and I benefited a lot from in terms of looking at what happens when sovereignty for nation is achieved, but the population looked like people who were free, enslaved, owners of enslaved groups, light-skinned, white-passing, dark, different forms of darkness. And what does it mean that a Toussaint Louverti, as diplomatic and political and revolutionary as he was, would say in that 1801 constitution that, yes, we're independent, but we're going to be allied to France, which we know is a very diplomatic, good move at the time, but then also says, well, you enslaved people, go back to the plantation and produce for the nation. And you're just like, wait a minute. So then 
you know, comes into play his nephew, I believe, Moise, who's I don't think we know his last name, thinking about Dr. Caroline Fick's book um, about the Saint Domain Revolution from below, which I love and still, you know, use to this day as a reference point. Um, where he's like, no, we're not going to turn back. And so many of the women who are like, we're going to go on strike, essentially, before strike was even known as a phenomenon to say, we're going to stop work. We're going to migrate from plantation to plantation in order to not do this. And so I think about their works and so many others who look at 1800 to maybe around 1890. And, you know, I want to gesture to the work of Haitian U.S. American scholar, Dr. Nathalie Pierre, who's now at Howard and, you know, just eagerly awaiting her book because she took that time and her own resources to, and by that, I mean like emotional resource to look at this 1700s, 1800s period, which is really, I think, hard to do because it always ends in tragedy, right? Like there's moments of victory, but it's just like, damn, we went through fire to get this one victory, the second victory, et cetera. But thinking about how their works makes us understand what happens to a population who now has successfully fought for revolutionary freedom, but now needs to keep uh, a nation upwards where the rest of the world is just like shaking Haiti, beating Haiti, uppercutting Haiti, left and right. What are the deals that people have to make in the form of the indemnity agreement that we all know is reparations that Black people paid their owners in order to be recognized? Or like what happens with Jean-Pierre Boyer, and I'm thinking now of Dr. Mimi Shelley's work, what happens when the president from 1820 to 1844, roughly, is saying that not only are you required to work, but we're going to have rural police and passports, right? So this is predating what uh, racist whites and Afrikaans did in South Africa. I was like, what do you mean Haitians had passports and rural police to make sure that you were working? And you find that this is across the Americas, not simply Haiti, but it just hurts more because I'm just like, we just fought a revolution. So you're kind of like, this is not the part two that I thought was going to happen. And so what you find is that the people who are known as the paysans, the peasants, right? They're political in terms of their mindset and in terms of their action. And so they move, they escape, they slip through the borders all while propping up Haiti in terms of their own labor and the resources that are pouring from their labor. Like they make this economy stand up um, as a result of their labor, but they do not do so quietly or without a fight. So just homage to, yeah, landed peasants, non-landed peasants and peasants who are able to slip through borders because they're ultimately, when I think about the people who have the most to lose and gain with the revolution, it's the enslaved population and immediately post-revolution, it's really those peasants who are just like, did we not just fight for this? And we're going to continue to fight for this, even if this white passing Haitian, this Polish Haitian, or this darker skinned Haitian is requiring us to build forts for free you know, till the land for free, et cetera. So, yeah. Returning to the point of the the repayment, which, you know, I don't even like that word, but we'll we'll use it for the moment. I mean, it's just like when you think of present Haiti, right? Present structural issues that Haiti faces and contextualize it in the sense of for their independence to even be nationalized or like, not nationally recognized, internationally recognized. There was this, you know, idea that they, as you mentioned, right, need to pay back the colonizers for their freedom in a sense. And the toll, Mm -hmm. you know, I I believe 
that it was the agreement was like for 150 million francs, right? Mm-hmm. And this is in the 1800s. So I'm not, you know, I'm not an economist, but if we were to figure out what that converts to in 2022, it's astronomical. Um, and so could you talk about how that repayment has really shaped Haiti's structural issues, um, mm-hmm. whether, you know, from 19th century up until now? Yeah, no, definitely. When you think about just crippling a nation and seeking to cripple um, their potential, it's fascinating to see. And I'm, I'm just convinced, but I haven't been to France. Like my spirit was like, nah, France, I'm not going to you first. I will always go to Haiti to study Haiti and Haitians first. And so I'm waiting for that document where there is, and this is my theory, that there's a collusion between France and the U.S. going, this is how we'll get like. We're going to acknowledge them, Abraham Lincoln says, in 1860s. But even prior to acknowledging them, we're going to do bootleg black market trading with them. Okay. And then in France, them saying that you have to sign this indemnity agreement, and I have my students pour over it, it's so written in, it neutralizes the violence of the words like, what is happening? And then I pair this side by side with looking at um, the ships and agreement for uh, enslaved architectural ships, but also the agreement of selling a grandmother, selling an elder, a child. And it's just like, there's a way in which the violence is made neutral, but you coming in from a literate lens, a black or brown lens, you're just like, oh my goodness, like there's nothing democratic about this. And yet you're trying to make it democratic. So they said the number was 150 million flunk. And fast forward, we know that then President Chabatin Aïssine in 2004, I believe, sent France an invoice demanding restitution for that payment. And I think it was the equivalent of 26 billion and some change. And you know, many of the Haitians, whether in Brooklyn, chilling at the barbershop or the salon, or some in Haiti have said, well, we wonder why he was deposed that very year or, you know, voluntarily or involuntarily um, left. And so I think about how egregious it is that not only France, but Europe, like I oftentimes look at awe at Britain, like why are y'all on a tour of the Caribbean? And I eagerly, eagerly am awaiting with my popcorn and my wine or maybe rum when they go to Barbados, just so I can see how Rihanna is going to tweet about this. But I just want to see her reaction because I'm like, you're not royals. When everything from that wedding that some people consumed, I wasn't consumed about, I wasn't concerned about that wedding that just happened. I'm looking at the church from the images that I saw after and I'm like, you owe Nigeria, you owe Jamaica, you owe the United States, you, like Britain, where haven't you colonized? Like India, And so I'm thinking about how we allow these stories of woe is Europe and enslaved Africans, black and brown people, you deserve it and pay us back. How we've allowed that to permeate and gain currency and even, you know, to bring it to this modern present, perhaps not as clear as a line, but the treatment of African Ukrainian or African immigrants to Ukraine, how Polish people are treating them speaks volumes to me about how one, I as a black woman am so concerned about Ukrainian people, but I also have to be concerned about African Ukrainians and also Ethiopia and Eritrea and Yemen and Iran. But I don't know, I feel like my white colleagues and comrades have to, they just get to pick one little cause and bake one little cookie and put one little flag up and help these refugees. And I'm like, So we're letting Ukrainian refugees come, but my people that are coming in Texas, 
after surviving a slave voyage from Haiti to Texas are being rounded up like dogs, like shit. You know, like I'm a proud Haitian first and foremost, and also a proud U.S. African-American. But like the images just don't, you know what I mean? Holds water. So I think about reparations systemically for that, but also I don't think any black or brown person and certainly no indigenous person should pay for college. Like our college debt makes no sense to me. If you, if we had succeeded in providing us with 40 acres and a mule globally, whether it was slavery in Puerto Rico, slavery in Haiti or Jamaica or Trinidad and Tobago, or if you provided us, or and, and let's say and, um, education, that maybe we could get to this level economically and with generational wealth. So all of that is related. Yeah. I mean, it's an important point that you're raising, especially because I'll, I'll even backtrack in a sense. Our last episode, primarily talking about Guadalupe and, and Martinique, Dr. Zakair even mentioned that like Haiti becomes a sort of like, just the the ways in which the the history of Haiti was manipulated, right, to even scare the rest of the French Caribbean out of following a very similar pattern, right? There's a reason why, you know, if you look at the the spectrum of independence movements in the Caribbean, there's a big jump from, you know, Haiti 1804 to say Jamaica and a lot of the English Anglophone Caribbean islands in the 1960s and moving forward, like it's intentional, right? Um, even in thinking about some of those, the French Caribbean, they're still departments, right? Like these are structural issues that I think without really foregrounding the history and the intentionality of colonizers, right, in containing um, their sort of domination in a way is a problem. Which also then leads me to my next question, especially in thinking about your book, Haiti Fights Back. One very critical point in Haiti's history that I think less often people are really aware of is the U.S. occupation. Um, And so for those who don't know, the U.S. occupies Haiti for almost 20 years, right, from 1915 to 1934. For what? I will let Dr. Alexi answer. But how does this occupation really affect Haiti's trajectory? And what were some of the ways, as you, you know, write about in your book, do Haitians resist this occupation? Yeah, no, definitely. I think the invasion and the reasons behind it still stump me because I'm like, damn, how long can you hold a grudge, right? Like a good therapist and a great pastor or a great grandma and grandpa would tell you, just let it go, set it down. It's like, a tumor on your own body. And so I think about how Woodrow Wilson sanctions this invasion in less than 24 hours. But then when we rooted back, we're like, damn, the U.S. or white U.S. Americans have been very obsessed with Haiti to the point of like, this is stalker. This is toxic masculinity. This might be a whole paper. Alexandra, let me write a note because there are sermons that are like, oh, they're the other, they're the bete noire. There were songs parodying Haitians, um, not discussing how so many U.S. Americans are coming to Haiti, as Chantal Vernon talks about in her book, Haiti and the Uses of America. And, you know, saying it's not only Haitians coming to the Americas, it's U.S. Americans coming to Haiti to learn art, culture and all things great that Black people um, continuously create. And so there's an obsession that happens where not only the U.S. Navy and later the military are policing Haiti's borders, getting involved, wanting the most Saint Nicolas. 
And I think one of the people who said it best, I was watching that documentary, Crucible of Empire, which of course is about Cuba and also the Philippines and Guam. But what some of the historians were saying was that uh, U.S. Americans felt emasculated and behind in the fact that they had not participated in the Civil War, their generation, or that the U.S. had not participated in the Berlin Conference. So although Britain and the Netherlands and Portugal are all over Africa carving up our continent and seizing it in a very violent way, um, the U.S. felt behind. It only had Liberia. It only had a little bit of Sierra Leone. And so they've come to now wreak havoc, not only in Cuba and Puerto Rico, but Haiti, Dominican Republic, of course, we know Mexico with California and Texas, Nicaragua, et cetera, et cetera, and later Trinidad, right? And so it's an interesting way that the obsession that the U.S. has with Haiti begins in Haiti's moment of revolution and doesn't, you know, still doesn't end to this. Like, I think about how a boxer knocks you down. And, you know, if you picture Leila Ali going, why won't you stay down? Like, Haitians will always rise. The nation still stands despite all the negative energy and methodology that they've used against us, including turning our pigs from black to pink. Um, you know, invading, training our dictator to harm us, Francois Duvalier, and yet Haitians still stand today like firm, like we're ready, we're poised to fight back, which I think is so brilliant and genius. So the reason, the immediate reason for the invasion is that they said Haitians can't govern themselves. They killed their president, Vibon Guillaume Sam, but he dies July 27th, and by July 28th, we have 330 white men seizing Haiti. And it's just like, how did you get that approved? How did Congress and Senate say yes? And how did you get these men coming from Tennessee to Virginia to Haiti? Sure. So like, you could tell this is like a calculated um, plot and a design. And even Woodrow Wilson, thank goodness, I have these documents, right? Because I know I'm accused of being a nationalist. I'm very proud of my culture. But then I look at these invaders' documents, and thank goodness I've said this over and over that what do racist, sexist, and those against queer people and different ability people do best? They keep copious methodical records. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, ancestors. Zonset. So I find Woodrow Wilson saying, we don't have the um, legal ways to do what we ought to do, but we must have a bull by its horns. Or you find documents where then Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, is writing Haiti's constitution. And I think about how would the U.S. react? How would the January 6th thugs or Confederate um, flag people react if Britain came in and said, you know what, y'all can't govern your people, we're going to write your constitution. What? That would be a global war. But because little Haiti, it's little Dominican Republic, little Panama, Nicaragua, we're just going to invade. And what they weren't prepared for was that Haitians were going to deploy silence, we're going to deploy active military battle with bamboos, with rocks, okay, and bayonets and cannonballs and destroy railways um, in order to fight against the U.S. invaders. So I argue in the book, and thankfully it's successful, um, that argument and that people are really paying attention to it, is that as many years as the U.S. was in Haiti performing minstrel shows, raping our children, kidnapping our young boys and girls and making them into domestic staff. Like, why is a seven-year-old shining your shoes? Put them in the second grade or third grade, because we know Caribbean people are always advanced kind of thing. And so it's like a fascinating way to look at how Haitian resistors stood up 
and against those invaders for the exact amount of years that the invaders were in Haiti physically. And then I look at this post-invasion period and how the United States remains in Haiti in a very economic, strong way. Yeah. That brings, um, it kind of circles a bit because I think you were earlier touching on a, a question that I also had. In a sense, you know, when we take together the importance of the revolution, how it's sort of demonized, right, to stronghold or prevent other islands at the time of, you know, making similar moves towards independence. And then also, you know, think through these sort of more recent events like the aftermath of the earthquakes, like the political instability, or even, you know, as you mentioned, um, migrants at our U.S. border. How do you see the imperialism and the racism both, you know, tarnishing the importance of Haiti as the first Black Republic? You know, like this should be, it should have, it should take on a different meaning in a sense, right? But then also, it's obviously, as we've sort of outlined, affected Haiti's development moving forward. Yeah, I think about that a lot. Like I was asked to do a talk on immigrants and I immediately thought about my grandma who was like half Syrian, half Haitian, you know, this biracial woman who's very proud of her blackness and her Haitianness. And it made me think about her stories and stories of women like her, but also bringing it to, what was the Cuban brother's name? Eliano Gonzalez who came in, you know, from Cuba, he was on a vessel and came and it became the story of how Castro needed to be undone, um, but also we needed to save this young boy. And I remember reading like the Haitian girl in her yellow dress, darker than me, black and Haitian and proud and dressed to the team. This is what we do, right? Like you don't go out with athleisure and represent us for jeans. Like you're always dressed. And so here's this young child also seeking asylum the same year as this Cuban light-skinned kid. And yet the world turns to light-skinned and ignores her, um, irrespective of gender and age, it all becomes color and race. And so it's an interesting way that over and over, Haitians have had to endure this question of, are we allowed in this country? How will we be treated in the United States, but elsewhere, right? When I think about Ooh, nearby Dominican Republic where our cousins and our aunties are acting up, even though we look just like them and they look just like us, etc. So I think about that often about how the revolution has been maligned successfully by so many outsiders who are like, they massacred the whites. And I'm like, wait a minute, why are we focusing on this white massacred narrative? Like the life expectancy was seven years. Like, you branded me with a flair de lis. Like you put my belly and dug it into some dirt and you beat me. Like you cut off my tongue and muzzled my mouth. So we're not going to talk about that? No, we, okay, that's okay. And so I think about like the post-traumatic slave syndrome that Sister Joy Degree, I think, wrote about. And like, why can't we have a moment to process annually, to heal continuously as our Jewish comrades arguably have had, right? Why can't we look at the effects of endometriosis, fibroids, infant mortality, what Serena Williams and so many Black women are talking about when they're giving birth? Why can't we link that back to slavery and the traumas of dealing with racism, sexism, anti-queerness in a way that other people are allowed 
to reconcile that or just process. We don't necessarily have to have the answers, but I'm very much convinced that fibroids and all of our uterine disorders are linked to slavery, are linked to this very racist and sexist and wrong capitalism. I'm for capitalism, but done the right way that's happening across the America. So it's hard for me to not think about those stories as on a global Black scale. Sometimes I want to tell my people, and this is from a privileged position, don't come to the U.S. Like the U.S. does not care about you if you look like me or if you're darker. Maybe if you can pass, maybe if you had that curly hair, or you could afford UPenn or Oberlin College cash, no financial aid, no work study. They'll accept you. They'll accept the Galupek because Galupek is big. But were they accepting Galupek before? Were they accepting his accent, his family members? Were they accepting um, Dr. Michel Gustuyo, who came? And even though he's a scholar, had to work as a taxi driver and ain't no shade. The taxi drivers, most of my family are taxi drivers, but had to prove himself as worthy of later John Hopkins, later you Chicago. So oftentimes I just want to tell my people, stay home. They don't care about you. Go to maybe Costa Rica where they actually like you. They remember that you helped out Simon Bolivier. They remember that you helped out during the Cuban struggle for independence against Spain. They remember that you helped out U.S. Americans in the Battle of Savannah. So it's a very complicated issue. And again, I say this as someone with privilege, right, with access to so many things that some of my Haitians don't have access to, but a lot of Haitians do, right, in terms of thinking about that single narrative of Haiti as being poor, the the last name that we want to retire, and just like, where do we get that last name from, and why isn't the last name like Haiti the first, Haiti, the one that gave to Bolivia, Haiti, the one that gave to Cuba and the United States, it's just like, they're poor. <laughs> okay, who isn't poor? Mississippi is poor. Actually, down the block from me in Lorraine, Ohio, where the great Toni Morrison is poor. Kids come to my house to get internet in year one and year two of COVID because their parents couldn't afford internet. So I'm thinking like, damn, who do we just uh, lodge these titles of poor against and who does it benefit, obviously, and who does it hurt? And it's oftentimes immigrants, dark-skinned immigrants, immigrants with accents that are not considered I don't know, juicy or enticing. It's considered like, just speak English kind of thing. So I don't even know if I answered your question, Alexandria. <laughs> you definitely did. The issues are not just like one set, right? It's not like, oh, this just happened and this happened. And that's why Haiti is what it is. Like these are grand structural capitalist ingrated in white supremacy issues that, you know, if we just take things at face value and say, oh, they had another earthquake and like they haven't been able to rebuild, right? Like there's a reason. Maybe if that hundred million, what is it? 150 million franc <laughs> didn't need to be paid back to France in, or, you know, starting, cause it's not like it was just at once, but anywho, right? Like these Today's issues are grounded in the past, um, and it's if we don't take stock of how they've definitely had an impact on who we are and even how we work with one another as a region, um, it's important for us to, to definitely note. My final question, my favorite question everybody knows of all, you know, I'm always looking for what's the song I need to listen to, what, what needs to be next on the playlist, or or what's the next novel that I definitely need to take up? So what are some of your favorite examples of how Haitian history has been, um, you know, 
celebrated in contemporary popular culture. <laughs> I love that as well. Thank you for it. So, okay, artists, I grew up with people who went to Baal, like the Haitian fete where they got dolled up and, you know, so Topi Kana stands out for me as one of them old school um, people. Belo is our latest conscientious type of artist. Emily Michelle, I love her. I mean, she epitomizes Haitian women um, for me. And I think about Jay Perry and this uh, female rapturist known as Kanis. Her name was Niska, but apparently there was like an Afro, um, an Afrobeats artist named Niska in France. And so midway through her career, she changed it to Kanis. But this sister, I love the way she spits bars about different ability, justice, environmental justice, what we do and how do we welcome and protect queer folks in IED. And I just love that. I mean, she's so much younger than me. Maybe she's in like her 20s, but it's spitting bars about that and showing IET across. So her and Jake Perry, they do a really great job of showing different parts of IET, the rich, the country clubs, the hood, you know what I mean? Like giving a really good perspective of um, different access points to Haiti, as opposed to simply the Port-au-Prince narrative or the slum narrative. So I big them up as artists. And there's like a slew of others. I could go on and on. Tabu Kombo and Kapi. Oh my gosh, so much. And then for books, oh my God, I'm like lovingly obsessed with the infamous Rosalie by Dr. Evelyn Tuyo. And let me tell me you. Me too. <laughs> I love that book. My students, athletes to super nerds, are like, why did you only give us two weeks to process this book? We need third week just for our emotion. And I'm like, we're in class crying, coughing, trying to hide our emotion, like taking bathroom breaks, jamming before class because she does it so well. And I'm so excited. She's coming to this conference that I'm planning. She's one of the many headliners for this conference, IET Archives Reimagined, because that book, oh my goodness, in French, but also in English is the jam and talks about the revolution as we were talking about in the beginning, like what happens when it starts on continental Africa at the ports, at the shores, and brings it to the Americas who were named and not named and that intimate look at women's circle, laku network. It's just, oh my goodness. So that is the book that I turn to. I mean, if I'm teaching a course on Cuba, I'm like, how can I get that infamous Gozali in there? I'm going to just throw it in there. We're going to make it big. <laughs> so yeah. But it fits with exactly what you're saying, Alexandria. Like when I think about Guada and Martinique, like I think about the work of Dr. Yarima Bonilla, who was tenure track when I, she came in tenure track as I came in as the postdoc at Rutgers. And I read her book about the strikes and I was like, oh my goodness. I was so blown away by it. Like not Occupy Wall Street, but even bigger than Occupy Wall Street. This is decades of a movement that's coming to fruition that she documents so beautifully. And I think about how, yeah, like Guadalupe and Martinique is not different from IT, is not different from Aruba and Curacao and what happens with oil in Trinidad or, yeah, it was just like the fact I was in Costa Rica for the first time this year and to meet Jamaicans who are like third generation Jamaican in Costa Rica to talk about we've never been to Jamaica. And I'm like, dude, you look like you're a descendant of Amy Jakes Garvey. You have the Starline Museum right here. Oh, and your Spanish sounds like Patois and you make empanada, but our version, 
it's just like, wait, what is happening? But some of whom have never been to Jamaica, but still hold on to the customs, the culture. And I'm just like, in Costa Rica, like it is the most blackest, beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And I'm like, ooh. But again, you know what you were saying before, like how do we collapse borders to realize that, listen, this struggle for us to gain complete liberation. And by that, I mean liberation for queer people, low-income folks, women in particular, all of those dispossessed and education. I mean, education is that passport, right? We always know the most dangerous uh, Black person is the one with education, is the one who knows how to read and is literate. So how do we make liberation total for all of us across the Americas and obviously across the world when we think about continental Africa and Black Europe? Let's keep it real. So yeah. Oyago, stay tuned for Strictly Fact Sounds, where we connect our history to pop culture. Adding to Dr. Lexi's list are two critical books I think everyone has to read on the Haitian Revolution and its impact on colonialism. Trinidadian historian C.L.R. James's The Black Jacobins is a must-read on the revolution and situates Haiti amongst the French Revolution as well. The next big read is Haitian anthropologist Michel Rochereau's Silencing the Past, Power and the Production of History, which originally published in 1995, further details much of our discussion today and how the West failed to acknowledge revolutions like Haiti's and the impact of power in historical storytelling. Thank you so much for joining this episode. I really appreciate it. If you don't mind, please let everybody know where they can find you on social media. Alexandria, that's so millennial, or is it Jesse? Let me tell you. I am horse and carriage. I require my suitors to write me letters and postcards. My nieces notice send me a little postcard <laughs> from wherever they are. And people are like, Anyway, and I'm like in my 40s, right? So it should not be this way. So, okay, social media. Facebook, I play around. But Twitter, I think I'm more academic. <laughs> Instagram, I'm more academic. So Twitter is my full name, Evelina Lixi. Instagram is Professor Evelina Lixi. Facebook is a little bit more Brooklyn love ebonics. <laughs> Lixi. But yes, I would say let's keep up on the Twitter streets and the Instagram streets for the academic version of me. (laughs) Perfect. Well, again, I appreciate you for joining us for this really necessary conversation. As always, y'all, links to Dr. Lexi's work will be in our show notes. And we really hope you enjoyed this episode. Little more. Thanks for tuning in to Strictly Facts. Visit strictlyfactspodcast.com for more information from each episode. Follow us at Strictly Facts Pod on Instagram and Facebook and at Strictly Facts PD on Twitter.